0: Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our Insights Series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more Insight Series updates, and as always, like,
1: subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to another Sybiline Podcast. Thank you again for joining us. My name is Abendik Manzin. I am the lead Analyst on the Sub-Saharan African Desk here at Civil Lines Global Intelligence Team. And today I'm joined by Edie Lipton, our Associate Analyst on the Sub-Saharan African Desk. Today we will be discussing the Kenya's upcoming general election on the 9th of August. Elections in Kenya are frequently highly contentious and due largely to the significant role that ethnic divides play within Kenya's political system. You know This often results in outbreaks of violence. And the most notable example of this was obviously back in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, when allegations of fraud lost in the deaths of over a thousand people. And while since then elections have not experienced similar levels of violence, clashes and tensions around polls are still relatively common. And in two thousand and seventeen, in particular, around fifty people were still killed in violence across election day and the post-election period. In part because Ray one of the primary candidates in this year's election, denied the election results. With these factors in mind. Let's dive right into the, to what are the major drivers of contention around these coming elections, E.D.?
0: Yeah, so at the moment, there's not too much disagreement in terms of policy, except for a couple of issues, one of which is China. So Ruto has threatened to deport Chinese nationals. They set up small retail shops. He claims that they're stealing Kenyan's jobs. In contrast, Odinga is focused on the high cost of Kenya's borrowing from Beijing, which is now struggling to service. It's risen to around 6.4 billion over the past five years. So Odinga previously negotiated deals with China, including a railway that linked Mombasa to Nairobi, but that's been subject to quite a lot of criticism. Um, So Odinga kind of says he wants to renegotiate loans with creditors, including China, if he won. In terms of other issues of contention, there's also the potential debt restructuring. So Kenya's external public debt is at 36.7 billion US dollars now, which is 34% of the GDP at the end of 2021. Odinga, his campaign is kind of focused around the emphasis on debt sustainability. He wants to restructure public debt and economic growth. In contrast, Ruto has said he won't look to negotiate any debt concerning existing borrowing. Ruto is promising much more in terms of his policies so he's promising to shift the focus from large infrastructural projects to smaller enterprises which implies more borrowing although he has said that he will kind of focus on debt reduction efforts
1: there. I think it's it's worth noting that really in terms of policy the the two candidates have basically aside from the couple of issues that you mentioned just there around kind of a more hostile approach to China versus an approach which generally is more focused on addressing Kenya's debt on the part of and than Odinga. Generally, in terms of policy, there's broader agreement. They're both pledging to take action to improve the lot of poorer Kenyans. Russo, through saying that he will help develop um, agriculture. Odinga, by saying he's going to provide a sort of subsidy to Kenya's poorest, uh, alongside similar pledges to invest in agriculture. So there isn't generally a sense, I think, in Kenya that any of the candidates really significantly agree on the key issues, nor is there, I think, a great sense that either candidate is necessarily has the answers to dealing with Kenya's mounting economic challenges. Really, the main issues that this election breaks down on is the, the issues which Kenya elections have frequently broken down along on the, on, in the past. It's again about these ethnic divides. Russo had a, a standing agreement essentially with the outgoing president Uhuru Kenyatta in the last two elections, that he would essentially bring his Kalenjin community on board with the understanding that when he then ran for the presidency, Kenyatta would do the same. He would bring his Kikuyu community behind him and, and back Urutu. But because of issues that they've had while essentially being in office together, you know, Urutu being Kenyatta's deputy, that agreement has largely broken down. Um, Kenyatta... After the 2017 election, there was the, the, the handshake moment with Odinga. And since then, he's worked much more closely with Odinga, even though he's an opposition leader, and then, as now openly backing him. And, and, and that's widely been perceived both by Rotu and by the wider Kalenjin community as a sort of stab in the back and a, a sort of evidence of a, a kind of an elite conspiracy to basically deny the Kalenjin community access to government and the higher offices in Kenya. So, there is that kind of angle of, of ethnic animosity again eking into this election process. And we've seen that with widespread hate speech on social media, in particular. And there have been circuits by NSCs uh, like Facebook to kind of regulate this, but there are concerns that this hasn't gone far enough. And that this narrative that there are ethnic communities that are trying to deny other groups power through electoral fraud and manipulation of the polls could be a galvanising issue in the post-election environment. With that in mind, what do we expect are going to be the results? Or Edie, what do you expect the results are going to be following the election?
0: So it's really close at the moment. The latest polls are showing that Odinga is ahead with about 47% compared to Ruto at 41%. 55% of voters in 18 counties are backing Odinga at the moment, and 55% of voters in 17 counties are backing Ruto. So it's really close at the moment. It kind of comes down to major areas like Mombasa, Nukuru, Kiambu. Mount Kenya as well is a key battleground. It's really going to be quite influential in the result. So Ruto has a support base among the Kikuyu community, which is the largest ethnic group, as you say, but the running mates as well are kind of adding to this, the closest to the results with Martha Karua and um Gatchakua. they're also from the Kikuyu community. So they're likely to influence the results in that way. I think also it kind of comes down to whether Odinga and Ruto dispute the the results and whether that, that goes to the Supreme Court after they potentially lose. I think that will influence the aftermath of the results in that way, whether that's going to impact respect for violence and things
1: like that so before we get to that i think it is worth digging into what you've highlighted there in terms of the ways in which the polls are are likely to go this section is exceedingly close and it's worth and as you say russu has been some um, successful in the last few years in building a bit of his own support base among the kikuyu of independent of kenyasa but The selection of running mates really threw those calculations up into the air, because while it looked like Rutu had succeeded, even without Kenyatta, in in basically dominating that community, the selection of Martha Kuruwa by Odinga, a member of the Kikuyu community, seemed to play much better than Rutu's running mate, Origathi Gachagua, who is um, much less well-known among the Kikuyu community, generally... You know, he comes with his own corruption scandals, whereas Karua is generally perceived as being respectable, well-known, as an established record in that community. And so it does seem that that has helped bring a lot of that community back over to Odinga, and I think that will influence the results. It's also worth mentioning, I think, the possibility that we might go to a second round, because obviously the way elections work in Kenya, the candidate needs to get at least 50% of the vote. In order to win. Now, I think it's while it's a possibility, this is currently one of the lower likely scenarios because none of the you know third candidates really are commanding very much support at all. And while polling has always put either candidates below the fifty percent margin, that has always included a large body of people who are undecided or, or say that they're not voting. If this whole body doesn't vote, then it's likely that Odinga, who is been kind of consistently marginally ahead in all these polls, should have enough of a margin of victory to secure, to come over the 50% line, or if that block of voters who are saying that they don't know breaks down along the lines that the rest of that polling has broken down on, again that should favour Adinga. So it, it's very close, but it does appear currently marginally most likely that Adinga will win, and it appears you know again less likely that we would go to a second round. That being said, there is some prospect, as you mentioned, Edie, for there to be um, violence in the post-election period and allegations of fraud leading to challenging of the the results. Could you dig into that a bit more in terms of how we might expect that to impact conditions on the ground?
0: Absolutely. So kind of looking at previous elections in 2013 and 2017, they were a lot quieter than we saw in 2007. But there were still voter intimidation, protests, we saw security forces using excessive force against protesters leading to quite a lot of deaths as you mentioned at the beginning. And in this election as well we've seen both candidates kind of exploiting ethnic divisions which is likely to elevate tensions and elevate the threats of voter intimidation, things like that. But divided communities like the Kagu communities and Kalenjin communities where it's more divided are likely to see more voter intimidation around polling stations there's likely to be violent clashes in areas as well prospects as you've mentioned kind of depends on what happens if Odinga and Ruto lose and they dispute the results protests and counter protests and clashes are likely if there's a runoff as you mentioned there's likely to be the candidates likely to call for protests because of irregularities that they've seen But in saying that, there are kind of mitigating factors as well. For example, if the candidates just accept the results, there's likely to be less violence. If candidates don't claim irregularities, and if they don't try and exploit ethnic divides, which is unlikely because we've already seen this happen, there's likely to be less violence as well. But in terms of where violence is likely on the ground, it's really dependent on which candidate loses, which candidate wins. For example, if Ruto wins, there's likely to be protests in Nairobi, Mathara, and Kibera. And in Oroo Park, which is likely to be targeted, that's where he was inaugurated falsely in 2018. And also in Western states like Kisumu as well, which are his strongholds. In contrast, if Odinga wins, there'll be pro-Ruto protests in cities and towns of Valley, including Eldoret, Nakuru, Navasha, with protests likely to target government facilities there. And as I kind of mentioned, in less economically developed areas, protests will target people who are thought to have voted for Odinga, like in the Kikuyu communities.
1: I couldn't agree more about the kind of geographic aspects of post-election violence. Definitely because of something that we've highlighted throughout this talk, about the kind of the ethnic nature of, of political support. It's those communities that lose out in this election, where we can expect to see the unrest. And obviously they're, they're largely concentrated in particular areas. So obviously you have uh, more collections in the Rift Valley area. And so we can expect to see protests most strongly there if we're the losers. But Odinga has, you know, while being of the Lua community and that community having a strong base in the West, he also has quite significant support bases in Nairobi. So it's more likely in the sorry in which he loses and alleges fraud, which again, we, we think is less likely than an Odinga victory. It's more likely that you'd actually, in that scenario, you'd see those protests emerging in Nairobi around with protesters from Kibera and Mathara converging on the city centre, trying to target government buildings, getting to those traditional protest hotspots like Akuru Park, causing disruption along major roadways, causing incidental threats, indirect threats to DAF operating in Nairobi's central business districts, impacting access to Kinyasa International Airport, because obviously, a lot of the main roads connecting the central business district to the airport go quite near to Kibera, And would, that would likely be a protest route from that district of the city into the central business district. So it's, it's definitely worth highlighting that kind of geographic split in terms of where we can effectively see unrest dependent upon who wins. But I think it's also definitely worth mentioning, and you highlighted this before, that the prospect that actually these elections, despite the hate speech, despite the efforts to suggest that the opposing side may be attempting to manipulate the vote in some way, and the likelihood that either camp that loses the election could have some grounds or some support as who would be willing to believe that the other side have fraudulently stolen the election, it's still entirely possible that you know, in the post-election period we don't see significant protests, that, that actually they pass relatively peaceably. And that's largely because there seems to be a greater sense of voter apathy around these elections. And this is is reflected both. We haven't seen significant violence in the build-up to these elections. Voter registration has been down on previous years. There seems to be a greater sense that neither of these candidates, as we mentioned earlier, have the answers to, to fixing all Kenya's problems. There's a general sense of skepticism about both candidates' records, particularly on things like corruption. And so all these factors may reduce the level of excitement and tension around the polls even while there are efforts to kind of ramp up the, the ethnic divide. So it's still entirely possible that the elections may pass off peaceably or that if there is unrest that that only goes for maybe a couple of weeks before um, protester fatigue sets in and the apathy that we were speaking about just now becomes more factor in, in reducing willingness to engage in, in unrest. So that appears to be key in dictating basically the severity of unrest in the post-election period. I want to thank E.D. Lipton for her fantastic insight on the podcast today. And now I uh, will turn to Anastasia Chisholm, our associate analyst on the Middle East and North Africa desk, to discuss events in the coming weeks, and things to be looking out for. So, Annie, what are the main trends and issues to expecting
2: over the next few weeks. On the 5th of August, Turkish President Recep Erdogan is set to visit Russia and meet with President Vladimir Putin. No official agenda has been released yet, but likely topics of discussion will include grain exports from Ukraine amid Russia's uh, continued targeting of cities such as Odessa. On the 9th of August, Sri Lanka could witness protests against the election of unpopular new president as anti-government protesters continue to call for rallies amid the ongoing economic crisis. While protests have been largely peaceful, high levels of participation and the strong state security presence is likely to result in high levels of disruption and possible clashes. In Europe, the European Union's ban on imports of Russian coal will come into force on the 10th of August. Energy security risks will increase as a result of the sanctions, particularly in Germany and Poland. Many Polish homes continue to rely on coal for heating, with socioeconomic risks set to rise. Meanwhile, steel and chemical industries in Germany will face increased bottlenecks in supplies. On the 11th of August, there will be gatherings outside of Brazil's University of Sao Paulo Law Department. They are presenting the Democratic Charter, which promotes democracy and opposes President Jair Bolsonaro. Given the polarisation over upcoming elections, the event has a reasonable possibility of attracting Bolsonaro supporters, driving the risk of violent clashes.
1: Thank you very much, Anastasia. And thank you all for joining us for another um, Civil Line podcast. For more information about the topics discussed today or to find out about upcoming events, please get in touch with us at info Thank you again for listening to us today. Goodbye.